Welcome to Inside Education, the weekly podcast for educators who are interested in teaching with me, Sean Delaney. I'm a primary teacher and a teacher educator, and I've written a book about teaching called Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have. You can listen to or download hundreds of previous episodes of Inside Education by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on Podcasts. If you enjoy Inside Education, please leave a review of it on iTunes or wherever you access your podcasts, because that helps grow the community that listens to the podcast. Your comments and suggestions are welcome by writing to Inside Education Podcast at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter, where my handle is at InsideEd. This week on the programme, I bring you another interview that I recorded at the recent annual conference of the Irish Primary Principals Network. This time, it is with one of the keynote speakers, Viv Grant. Viv Grant is from London, and she's a former primary head teacher. But now, she coaches principals through her organisation called Integrity Coaching. She's the author of a book called Staying Ahead, The Stress Management Secrets of Successful School Leaders. You'll really like this podcast if you're interested in how principals' life stories can shape their work, in the benefits and process of coaching for school principals, in finding out about the difference between coaching and mentoring, in learning the qualities needed by a coach, and if you want to hear someone who is passionate about the power of school leadership and about the need to support school leaders. When I spoke to Viv, I first asked her to summarise her message to Irish primary principals when she addressed them at their conference. My message when I spoke to the principals this morning was really how important it is to really connect to your why and to your vocation and your passion and purpose and to see that as being linked to the stories that we carry with us and understanding which of our stories serve us well and which of our stories might need to be rewritten so we can show up with greater authenticity and integrity. When you talk about stories, how can somebody find the stories that are animating their work and their lives? Well, as I said in this talk, we all have a story. And so when you say, how can someone find that story? I think that the best thing is that they're asked questions. So what are your reasons for being in the profession? What motivates you? What inspires you? What brings you joy? And as people start to answer those questions, they're often located in very deep personal experiences. And as you listen deeper, you can then invite a deeper conversation with someone about what they're sharing with you and what they're revealing of their story. So what is your story? What has brought you to to your work? Okay, so as I shared this morning, (laughs) my story really is of a young girl growing up in South London in the 1970s with a number of messages really about who I was not meant to be or who I couldn't be. So I had stories from my childhood that were either linked to what I saw around me, my mum being a strong single parent. So the message I got from her was to survive in this world, you've got to be strong and you must never show your emotions. And from society around me, the messages that I got was as, as a young black girl, don't ever expect much. Don't ever expect that, the, that you're going to achieve in this system. I didn't share this in the um, talk this morning, but I did have at secondary school teachers who, told me, who were quite racist, who told me to go and swing on the trees and eat bananas, like my friends and relatives, the monkeys. 
I had an A-level English teacher who told me I couldn't speak standard English properly. And I had a careers teacher who said that I should go, I should consider working in the local supermarket. Because when I said I wanted to be a nursery nurse, not even a teacher or a head teacher, I was told that was too high an aspiration. So I had all these threads, as it were, other people's projections that had woven into my own inner narrative. And I didn't know how to question that. And I didn't realise until I, when I stepped into headship how I would have to rewrite this inner narrative so that I could show up, show up with integrity and authenticity and be the fifth grant that I really am and not who other people thought I should be. And how did you begin to articulate that story for yourself, that narrative? Painfully, if I'm really, really honest, painfully. There were a couple of incidences, so one which I did share this morning where I found myself crying in my car after one particular heavy day at school and a parent telling me a few home truths that really I didn't want to hear but I had to hear in terms of the model that I was presenting for bringing up my own child and how could I tell her how to bring up her own child when I was in school early in the mornings, leaving late at night. and. That brought me to a place of real emotional vulnerability. And now, as I said, I had a, one narrative was you be strong. You never show your emotions. So that was a very strange place to be brought to internally, to actually realise that if I was going to be a different kind of strong, I was going to have to engage my emotions and learn how to engage with them. So I started seeing someone at the school, actually, who was our school counsellor for the most vulnerable. And then my whole journey now as a coach has meant through supervision and through developing best practice, you have to be in a constant conversation with another therapist or supervisor so that actually you have a greater understanding of your own narrative in terms of how you shape and support others who are shaping their own narrative. So it's been an ongoing it's a lifelong journey for me now, really. Yeah. But at least once you can articulate it, mm. then you can begin to, 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 to edit it or to, to examine it at the very That's least. Exactly. It no longer has power over you. I think what I realise so much from my own story and the work that I now do with school leaders is that there's an un very often the narrative is unconscious and it drives our behaviours and we don't realise that. And unless you can start to articulate it, then you're, you're lead really in a way that's very unconscious, in a way that, where you're leading out of awareness. And we can't have that for school leaders. I couldn't have that for myself and certainly can't have it now as a coach. You have to understand what are the subconscious threads of your narrative and how they weave together to almost create the framework or the landscape in which you're living in. And if parts of it are hurting and don't feel right then you have to know which bits of the story needs to be unwoven or the threads you know, untangled so that you have the picture that you want to be living in. And you said there that the narrative can be subconscious. Do you think for many principles it is subconscious? Without a shadow of a doubt. Um, as I said, you know, majority of my time now is spent working with school leaders and it's not until they are listened to deeply that you can help them to understand, okay, so this has been driving your behaviour. I'm not talking about deep psychology, I'm not talking about therapy or counselling. However, I am talking about a level of coaching that has a level of depth to it that is enough to enable school leaders to see, ah, oh, okay, that habit that I have, and that I, th I keep saying, oh, it's just me, that's just how I am, 
it doesn't have to be. I can change that habit. I can choose to have some agency over how I show up. And this is what I'm going to do about it. And if someone is not conscious of their narrative, how can that manifest itself? What kind of self-talk oh, is going goodness on? goodness me. In so many ways, it can manifest itself. For example, let's take the difficult conversation. It's rare that I come across someone who initially, when stepping out into leadership, likes having a difficult conversation. And very often that will be rooted in something of that person's childhood or their past. So... You know, to have a difficult conversation might mean a threat of conflict or not being included or not getting a message of approval. Now, these are all subconscious and how it might manifest is when that person comes to have a difficult conversation, they avoid it or they do the pleasantries or, you know, some other way of getting out of or when they have the conversation, never quite truly feeling themselves. And I've got a really good example of one head teacher that I worked with and he, he was having an issue around this and then once he had that aha moment he went oh I get it now Vir. and the way he phrased it was I never want to doubt the authenticity of my own voice again because for him the way it had shown up was he kept saying yes to other people he kept compromising and for him he was trying his utmost to do his best but not realizing there was a subconscious narrative running along there was that actually to get the approval of others I've always got to show willing or I've always got to accommodate and meet their needs and that very often actually is a message that we all get through childhood that in order to um, be okay in order to survive we have to adapt to our environment and to a certain sense that's that is true that's how we all learn to survive and show up but there's a certain point comes in all of our lives where actually I always say the old messages no longer serve us, or the old narratives, and you have to rewrite them. And that was an example there of him just coming into awareness, and actually, oh, that doesn't serve me very well anymore. I have to find what my own voice looks like and not keep adapting in situations so that other people feel okay, and actually I feel rotten. So that's so, one example. Yes, yeah, so I'm even thinking of <laughs> a principal teacher who maybe is unhappy about a teacher turning up late sometimes, mm -hmm. or yeah. maybe they're not happy about the way a, t a teacher is managing the yes. children's behaviour, yes. but they may not do anything about it yeah. because of their own insecurity or their own, their own lack of co confidence yeah. in those kind of tough yeah. conversations. Yeah, and also, though, I think the system doesn't support school leaders having the conversations around your doubts around your vulnerabilities so I think we have to be understanding of the school leader who finds themselves in that position because the system says you've got to be brave you've got to carry on you've got to make out that you 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 can have those conversations with ease there's no room for doubt there's no room for worry there's no room for you to actually um consider what the doubt is about so I think we have to be understanding of them I think because that's 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 just being human as far as I'm concerned, um, we all have doubts, we all have worries, we all have fears. And what we need to do as we got through CSL Island here, you know, through the Centre of School Leadership, where every principal has access to coaching, that's what should happen as far as I'm concerned across in every education system. Find a vehicle that allows school leaders to have safe conversations which are really about what it means to be human. Because when you can do that, you provide them a space where they can do the outward, the front stage work and be very confident in who they need to be, but also the backstage work where they can explore their vulnerabilities. And then you get what I call alignment 
between the inner and the outer. It's when you don't get that alignment that we then see the sad cases that we have of burnout or head teachers leaving because they feel that they're not enough. And as far as I'm concerned, that is so far from the truth. They are enough. But the system does not provide the vehicle to allow them to really understand what they need to do to make that message of being enough ring true for them. So you've said that the system doesn't provide the support, but you personally have been involved in coaching and you have a, a, an organisation, yes. a consultancy yes. that you work around. First of all, what does coaching involve for principal teachers? Okay, what does coaching involve for principal teachers? So from my perspective, what coaching involves, it involves a number of things. One, it's a safe space. One, it's a, a space to be heard, a space to be valued and a space to be really listen to now when I say really listen to I don't mean listen to in the sense of um, a head teacher thinking oh, I've got to come up with the right answer or oh, I've got to say this because they're gonna they're gonna judge me they're gonna think x y and z what I mean is a space where the phrase I would use is where the soul steps forward where the persona drops and actually the person behind the mask behind the persona just comes into the room and they are delighted in in terms of everything that they bring waltz and all that's what i mean when i say principal coaching because for many principals and head teachers their form of support is all to do with actually confirming the persona confirming the mask confirming the strong behaviors now some of that is necessary but it's not the to totality of what is needed they need that space where you can take that off it's a space where they can be vulnerable exactly <laughs> yes a space where they can be vulnerable and just show up. And yeah. is that something that a principal or a head teacher needs to decide that they want coaching, or is it something that should be provided to all principal teachers? Like, what? How? How do, how do you go about organising coaching in in your work? Okay, so there's two questions you asked there. One, do how my company Integrity Coaching go about organising it, but also whether that I think that's something that principals need to ask for or should be provided. I'll ask, answer that second question first of all. I think that's the most important. If I hadn't been a head teacher, I don't think I'd be so firm about my response to this, but having been a head teacher where I didn't have access to any support and I had to find it myself, I would now say it has to come as a right. If you look at, if you look at social workers, they get supervision. If you look at psychologists, they get supervision. Head teachers, and particularly now what we're seeing with cuts in public services, and I'm not too sure the depth to which is impacting here in Ireland, but in England, Many school leaders are having to pick up so much on their doorstep because social services are being cut and public services are being cut. And I mean, some really horrendous levels of, no, I shouldn't say horrendous levels of support, but in terms of the level of need where they might be having to, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating here, clothe children, potty train children, provide services for children, you know, breakfast clubs we're, here, we're hearing more and more about. Now, before, that would have been the work of social workers. Schools are having to step in now to fill that gap. So we're asking the head teachers now not only to lead and to be the lead practitioner around curriculum development and teaching and learning, but also you now need, now need to have the skills of a social worker and a psychologist without any additional support. That's inhumane. And so as far as I'm concerned, it needs to be a right from the time someone is appointed as a school leader in terms of the duty of care of those around them they're saying because we see the gold in you and we see and we understand the stresses of your role we're going to offer you coaching 
as a way to keep you well in the role and as a way to give you a space just to really think through the challenges and also not only the challenges but the how they are causing you to change that's another thing we seem to ignore we talk about school improvement we talk about school development as if it is separate from the person they are not school development and human growth and development they go hand in hand and if, and we do the system does our school leaders a disservice when it doesn't recognize that the people change and people grow and you have to give them the space to recognize that so in answer to your question that's what i feel is really important i don't think any head teacher should have to beg for it or to ask for it they're given it as a right because Again, I would say only a handful of people step into this role and education owes them a duty of thanks and a duty of care. Thank you for stepping into this role that not many can actually take on. So that's the answer to your first question. And in answer to the second question, how do we integrity go about it? It really is through heads will call us, we'll have a conversation. And if they want to take the conversation deeper, we'll arrange for that to happen. And then they make a decision as to whether our way of working, because it is different from some other models of coaching, is right for them. But they always make the choice. Coaching, yeah, coaching has to be a sense of actually an individual making the choice that actually this is something that feels right for me. I don't want to be contradicting what I've just said there about, you know, it needs to be given as a right. I, do, I still do feel that, but I feel... I suppose in terms of the choice, a choice in terms of who they go with, who they actually decide to have that conversation or relationship with. And if a principal embarks on coaching, is that something that is ongoing through their career or is it something that, you know, might be just for a period of time? I think it can be both. Personally, I think it needs to be something that needs to be for an ongoing period of time. I say that, one, from my own experience as a coach now, I can't see myself not being without a supervisor, not being without that kind of relationship that holds the boundaries for me. And I think it's the same for head teachers and also for head teachers and school principals. The challenges never go away. So I think it's slightly a mistake to think that oh, once you've had coaching, then that's it. As I've said, the journey of human growth and development, it's a, it's a lifetime task for all of us. And when you're in school leadership, that lifetime task, I think, is made more acute. And you become much more aware of the changes that are being asked of you and your organisation. And I think the level of depth that heads need to go personally and organisationally, I think that support should be ongoing. Uh-oh as until a, the school principal says, I no longer need it. But personally, as I said, life, life is forever <laughs> until, you know, we're no longer here. So I think for whilst heads are in the job, it should be a right, as, you know, CSL are providing for heads here. Yeah, that's the centre for school leadership. Yeah, and we'll right. talk, talk a little bit about yeah. that in a moment. And if a principal then is working with a coach, how does it work? Like, how often would they meet their coach, for example? Again, that would be decided between the principal and the coach. For our own practice, it tends to be about once per half term, um, so maybe six times in a school year. The agenda is always, always, always set by the principal, the head teacher. I think that's really important because 
for most principals and head teachers, they know any one-to-one, the agenda is normally set by someone else with an outside agenda and they're being held accountable to someone else's agenda. Whereas with coaching, it's not like that. It's their agenda, your agenda, you set it. And that, you know, that can be a breath of fresh air. And you've mentioned the Centre for School Leadership yeah. and they are working towards that here. Yeah. So if you're looking for a coach then, mm-hmm. what kind of qualities does a coach need to have in order to be able to work with principals? I think, obviously, the ability just to listen. I'm always in awe in terms of the impact deep listening has upon individuals. So, you know, look for the person's ability to listen and to really listen and to understand you and to come with no judgment. And also, I think, and this won't, I think there needs to be a distinction between coaching and mentoring because I think sometimes people cloud the boundaries a bit. Now, if you want pure coaching, you will be looking for someone who's not going to be saying to you, oh, I was a head teacher or a principal and this is what I did. That isn't coaching. But if you want a mentor, then yeah, that's what a mentor will do. A, a coach won't do that. A coach believes that you're the expert in your experience and the expertise is in you and they will ask questions to enable you to seek the truth inside of you and for you to really be rooted in who you are and what you are about. Would the coach typically have been a principal themselves or would they have experience of that? Not necessarily so. I mean, no, not necessarily so. I mean, I only came to coaching, obviously, because of my own background as a head teacher, but, you know, coaches that I work with who are part of integrity and I know coaches, you know, other coaches, no, not necessarily. I think sometimes heads prefer it because they think, oh, you'll understand my context. I think as long as the person is empathetic, has understanding, and it also pays real attention to their inner work, I think that's really important more so than anything else. You just want a coach who's empathetic, has and remains committed to doing their own inner work so that when they're with you, they're just present for you. And it's not to do with ego or status, just to do with you and enabling you to walk your path. That's the most important thing. And how widespread is coaching in the, in the UK? You know, I'd love to be able to say, oh, it's really widespread in the UK, and particularly, you know, in support of school leaders, but it isn't. We still talk to a number of school leaders, head teachers, who are having difficult conversations with their governors because their governors don't understand or think it's a luxury or think it's too much of an investment. And my argument always is, well, first of all, look how much is invested in getting them to that level. And also, if they were to go, how much is invested, not just financially, but of time when that person goes. So it isn't too much of an investment to ask to keep that person well and to keep them in their role. We just had to change our thinking around it. So there's still a lot of work to do in the UK around just educating the sector, around, one, the value of our school leaders and what they do, to their needs, their real needs, and three, how appropriately to meet them. And, and until we get to that stage, and I think we're always going to be having an upward struggle, as it were, to get coaching fully recognised just in terms of the power that it can make and the difference that it can make. And I just so wish that we had a similar CSL <laughs> you know, in the UK. So I think it's wonderful that principals here have access to this service. You see, I just wonder... To what extent could there be a stigma attached to coaching that somebody might say, oh, that principal 
is is having coaching maybe there's something wrong yeah and i think that's part of the education piece for our sector again i think if we look at the business world and if we look at sports do that is there that stigma no in sports we see it because they recognize oh my god yeah you've got this natural talent oh we're gonna get a coach to work alongside you to to flourish it to nurture it there's no stigma whatsoever they get their gold medal who are they thanking their coaches in business is there a stigma no there's a recognition oh my god you're the highest paid you know you're the ceo oh my god we gotta take care of you we really value you yeah you're, we're gonna give you a coach so i'm sorry we just need to apply that similar thinking to the education world in the top tennis players they all have exactly, coaches exactly 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 you get my point you get my point at the age of 31 you were appointed to be head teacher uh, and you were given the task of turning around yeah. a so-called failing school mm-hmm. a failing primary school what is a failing primary school and how did you move it towards success okay so a number of points here i don't like the term failing i don't like any of the categories or labels that are applied by the inspectorate to schools i think it's wrong and i think it demoralizes communities and the people who are leading in their schools because it seems to go from a place of actually do you think any head teacher or teacher gets up in the morning to say that I don't want to do a good job here and I want these children to have a poor education? No. So I think there's some, I just need to make that point. There's something wrong with the labelling and the way in which schools are categorised. So having said that, yeah, the school did need improvement and needed to further develop. I'll, I'll accept that. Um, and in terms of moving the school forward, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to say it was easy. It was really, really hard. You had attitudes to change, particularly among some members of staff who were long-serving, had been there longer than I, and really their practice wasn't very good. And you also had a community who hadn't been very well respected, really, and who really, I think, were, were, and understandably so, wary of the school's intentions and what it was about. And I think... When I look back with hindsight, I think moving it forward was one to do with my deputy, who was fantastic. I couldn't have done it without her. And I think also it was to do with, and I I think I'm glad to say, one of my own strengths, that I am a people person and I know that I do look for the good in people. So it was really a sense of trying to look for the good in people, trying to look for where it was and really just trying to raise morale and just really trying to create a community that we we're all on this journey together. And there were many dark nights of the soul for me. I, I found it very difficult, again, being young and new in the role. But it's funny, just over Christmas, I found a letter from, um, he was our school administrator at the time. And uh, there are a few times when he was quite difficult. And he wrote me a letter on leaving. And I haven't seen this letter for about 20 odd years. And I found this letter and he was just saying, I get it now, Viv, in hindsight. I see what you were trying to do. You were, you were being authentic. You were being real. You weren't just saying these things. You were li- living these values, even if it meant challenging us. And thank you. And I was like, oh, my God. So, yeah, that's how I did it, through some painful bits, but really just trying to be myself, maybe, maybe making a few mistakes along the way, which we all do, but just trying to hold true to the vision that I had for the school and loving those children, really, because that's what you do it for. When you started answering that question, yeah. you started with attitude. Was mm. that what you started with in the job? Was, was that your first step to change attitudes or did you start somewhere else when you were actually faced with this task of, of moving the, the school to higher success? 
I think it was a combination of things. I don't think you start off, well, for me anyway, it was just one thing. There was a sense, yeah, we had to improve classroom practice. We really did have to address some expectations in the school where there was low, low expectation and, and poor attitudes towards the community and towards the children. But I think it really was a combination of things and, you know, they all sort of coalesce and come together. And I don't think there's any one single point. I think it was just a sense of getting those who were on board to come firmly on board and collectively all of us working together so that those who weren't on board either had to make a decision to leave or you have to do that school leadership thing of helping them to leave and find their exit. And for the ones who maybe were going to stay, how do you bring about improvements in classroom practice? I mean, did you bring in expert speakers? Did you ask them to read certain texts? Did you model good practice what how, how do you bring about change in but when you're in a school that has been categorized you always will have experts coming in so of course we you know we took on the support from the local authority we were a church school from the diocese as well but also you use the expertise of your of your good teachers and so my deputy she was outstanding so she was very good in terms of her classroom practice and we had other good teachers as well so where you had good teachers in the school who were exemplary in their practice you then use them to support other teachers in the school. So is that by, say, mentoring them? Mentoring, team teaching, all sorts really, just a, a combination. And then I think for me as a school leader, I think my role was very much to do with around just staying true to the vision. You know, I, I loved that school and I loved that community. And so for me, whether it was through assemblies or staff meetings or senior leadership meetings, just connecting back to the vision, connecting back to what was important. And how did you keep the focus on that vision while looking after all the admin and all the kind of tedious things that principals have to do from day to day, just paperwork? I think you just do, and it's a bit like what I was talking about this morning. If it's in you, you can't let go of it. So it's there. It's there when you're talking to a parent. It's there when you're talking to a teacher. It's there when you're talking to a pupil. It's part of you. You hold the vision. So you can't let go of it. And it doesn't let, I believe anyway, it doesn't let go of you. Yes, you have exhaustion. Yes, you have days when you think, oh my God, can I do any more? But if it's your vision and it's rooted in what you believe, you can't let go of it. It's there. It's who you, you embody it. And was that your vision or was that the vision of the Board of Management, the Board of Governors? It was, no, it was very clearly my vision. I remember when I was appointed for the deputy headship of the school and they asked you what your vision is and you've got to do a presentation. I remember really clearly saying it was to buck the trend of urban, urban underachievement. And I remember crying because I was so passionate about it. But I'd thought about it. You know, I'd been, I had been a product of the state education system that had failed me, Viv Grant. So I knew without a shadow of a doubt if I was going to be a senior leader in that school, those children were not going to have the same education that I had. So that's when I said, when it was in me, it was in me. It was Viv's Grant's vision. And that's what the governors brought into an interview. But the downside of that is that when Viv Grant leaves, the vision goes as well. Well, you know what? I kind of like think of it slightly differently because I think every school leader has their time. So yes, it might be that my vision went with me, but some seeds would have been planted and every school leader knows that when they go into a setting, they've got to make the school, the school their own. So that's okay, because it's kind of like 
every school leader has their moment in time when they're in their school and it is their vision that has to come to life. But they accept that when they move on, aspects of it will remain and aspects of it will go because then it is the new leader not to walk in someone else's shoes. They've got to find their own shoes to walk in and fill their shoes with their vision and the next stage of a school's journey. But is that not too much pressure on a single individual? Should a school not articulate its mission, say, from a central level, from, say, for example, the Board of Management? No, to be honest, because if you look at the Board of Management, from my experience, I talk for the UK, I won't talk for Ireland now, okay? Most of them have never been head teachers. <laughs> so, you're, how can a, you know, a civil servant or a banker or an accountant <laughs> tell the head teacher how to run their school? Yes, it's okay for the head to be accountable to them, but most of the time you will find that a head teacher has been a teacher. They might even have started as a teaching assistant. They've been a teacher. They've been a deputy or an assistant head. This growing vision that they begin to then embody as a head teacher has been developing. It's been nurtured over the years of being at the chalk face. Of course, they have to hold and embody that vision. I'm not going to be asking an accountant to do that. I'm sorry. That's not their calling. Their calling is the numbers. For a head teacher or a teacher, I'm sorry, it starts from, you know, the very beginning, for the majority, I should say, anyway, the majority of when they first step foot in the classroom, whether that have been as a teaching assistant or a teacher, and then something grows and it grows and it grows. And they see how from the classroom, oh, to a team, oh, to a school, that they can have influence and change things. So is it too big an expectation? No, because it's their calling. Viv, you've written a book called Staying Ahead. Mm -hmm. What is that book about? Okay, so Staying Ahead, the subtitle is The Stress Management Secrets of Successful School Leaders. And that's what it's about, really. It's really the learning that I have sort of gathered over the years from my own experience having been a head teacher, but also now as a coach. And really, it's about the inner work. We focus so much on the outer work of being a school leader. So to be successful, you have to be seen to you know, perform in a certain way or your school development has to do this or your school results have to deliver this. That makes you successful. Not necessarily so. It's only part of the story. There's an inner work and that's your emotions. It's your values. As we've spoken about already, it's about your story. It's about understanding who you really are. And that's what Staying Ahead is about. It's about the inner work of school leadership and helping school leaders to understand how to pay attention to that. And that is, that is really challenging because even just to find the time to do it in the, the myriad of other things that have to be done is not easy. You're right. It is challenging. But what are we seeing as the result of people not rising to the challenge? What are we seeing? So I'm putting the question back to you now. What are we seeing? We are seeing heads leave the profession. We're seeing burnout. We're seeing illness. So it's no longer something, an argument really, that we should be allowing to shape the discourse really. It is a challenge, but the very fact that particularly in the UK now, not in Ireland because you are waking up to it and you're seeing that coaching is really important. That, but in the UK, it, it no longer makes any sense. 
to keep ignoring the fact that we need to create time and we need to help heads to engage with their role differently. Because at the moment, the system is taking a hit and it breaks my heart when I hear or I speak to heads who have left because support wasn't given. And I can see that if support had been given at the right time, they would have stayed. That's tragic and it's wrong. So yes, it's a challenge, but it's one that we, the profession now needs to rise to for the sake of every school leader and for the sake of our children. We're coming near the end. I have some general questions that I put to every guest on the programme so uh, about education. And the first one is, what is school for or what are schools for? Wow, that's a big question and it's a deep question. What are schools for? Oh, I don't want to give the trite answer, you know, education, because it's so much more than that. But if I were to think about it, I think I would probably say schools are for enabling our children to find their true selves, to find their gifting, and to find their place in the world, and to take their gifting into the world in such a way that it makes our world a better place. I don't think it's about fitting them into boxes. I don't think it's about saying they need to learn certain texts that are set, decided upon by you know government officials or civil servants because that's what they learnt at school and that's the way the world works, no. I think school has to be about celebrating diversity, inclusion, and really enabling children to find their gifts and then how they best use those gifts to make the world a better place. Was there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? This is sad because I'd really like to say yes, but there weren't. Um, the, the impact could have been positive or negative. Okay, negative then. I think. The only, maybe my first, okay, maybe my very, very first teacher, that's true, Miss Bennett. She was wonderful. So it was an infant, I remember Mrs. Bennett, and only just her love and her warmth. But then I have to be honest, from primary school upwards, all through secondary, m much of it was negative. Teachers who were prejudiced towards working class black girls and had very low expectations of who we were, what we could be, and how to show up. So I suppose that's why this work that I do means so much to me because I can see the difference it makes. If you have a teacher who believes in you, teachers have so much power and so do school leaders. And they can, they can change the world if they enable every, every single child who they come into contact with to be their best selves. So that's why I'm, I was so passionate when I was a school leader and that's why I'm so passionate about the work that I do now because every person is precious, every person is of worth and we owe it to everyone, particularly if we're involved in schooling, to recognise that. But ironically, was it that negative experience that drove you to become a teacher? Well, it's funny, isn't it? They say our wounds become our strengths and I think it really must have been because... At school, I really, because of you know, the projections of my teachers, I really believed I, I couldn't be anything. And it wasn't until I went to teach a training college, and Pauline, if you're listening to this <laughs> podcast, I doubt if you will, but Pauline Lysett-Jones, who was my, and Mary Fuller, Mary Fuller at uh, my teacher training college, they were the first two adults to say to me, my teenage years, Fifth, there's something special about you. 
you're gifted as a teacher and you're doing things differently. No one else had really given me that validation through secondary school. It was all, oh, Viv's really nice, yeah, she's friendly, but oh, don't expect too much of her, sort of thing. And then at teacher training college, to have other people believe in me and then see that actually there was something that Viv was really good at and there probably had been all along, that was very seminal for me. So if you were to say, go back to teach that had an impact on me, it wasn't until actually I was, I was training to be a teacher and those two in particular. And it was because they believed in me and they saw something in me that up until then others refused to see. What is your vision of an educated person? Depends what you mean by educated. Well, how, how, how would you define educated? Um, and I don't know if I'd even use that term. And maybe that's because I think it feels quite, culturally, it feels quite weighted. When we say educated, I think culturally what we might tend to think of would be people who have gone to university, people who are literate, people who have letters after their names. I think for me, it would be someone who has understanding of self. Because if you understand yourself then you give yourself so much power to make a difference and to be authentic and true in the world. And that's what we need. We don't necessarily need people who have letters in front of their names because normally with that, that come, comes big egos and actions that are self-serving. I think we need people who are educated about self and are educated about who they really are and the people they want to be in the world. Yeah, that's what I, I would say, my definition. Who or what inspires you? Who or what inspires me? Oh, goodness me. If I go with what inspires me, and I think this is as I'm getting older, nature, <laughs> nature inspires me. I look at... I do. I just look at... Um, it's, someone said to me, it's no coincidence, Viv, that the company's logo is a butterfly. One, because I think butterfly, I think in some sort of traditions, cultures, it's equated with the soul. And very often I talk about, you know, the soul and who we really are. But equally, I think when you think about the journey of a butterfly, you know, I often think that if a chrysalis of consciousness, when it's in that, you know, in the dark state, in the cocoon, it'd be like, oh my God, what's happening to me? My world has come to an end. But nature knows different, doesn't it? Nature knows, hang on. Something beautiful is happening. When you're in this state of vulnerability, I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to watch over you because something beautiful is happening. And then at the right time, a butterfly emerges. And I think there are parallels with the human experience. We all go through dark times. And, and maybe that's again why I think coaching is so important because coaching can be a bit like the cocoon or the chrysalis. It can be the space that allows you to be vulnerable. And it can be the space that allows you just to open up to beauty and the sense of who you really are. So I think, you know, in answer to your what, it's, it's nature. And then in terms of who inspires me, it has to be my children. You know, they inspire me to be a better person. They inspire me because I look at them all completely different. And yet I see them making themselves in the world, their way in the world. And I think, yeah, you know, they teach me about my life and who I am. And they are a gift and I'm not going to take them for granted um, that they've chosen me <laughs> to be their mum. So, yeah. And is their experience of education more positive than yours has been? 
than yours was? That's a good question. And I'd like to think yes, actually. I mean, who knows? They might say differently. But I look at the young people, because they're, what, 21, 20... No, 21, 18 and 16. And they definitely have more confidence than I ever did at school. My boys have had a few teachers that haven't necessarily believed in them as much as they could have done. But generally, I think their experience has been better than mine, yes. Have you a favourite blog or book or writer about education? Oh, that's really interesting, because I tend to go um, sort of, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, when we think about blogs or books on education, I tend to sort of take a different route. (laughs) So I tend to look at things that are slightly... um, left field as it were so he's not necessarily an education writer but David White is a poet and I love his poetry and I love his musings around um, somewhere around education because I think metaphor and poetry can speak to you at a deeper level so there's David White Parker Palmer is actually a writer and his book The Courage to Teach I think is one of the first books that really sort of spoke to me about the inner work of school leadership and again John O'Donoghue who isn't (laughs) I know isn't um, necessarily people think oh education a blog post but oh again his poetry and his book of blessings they speak to me and they speak to the work of head teachers and it was funny I was I was contemplating whether I was going to include one of his poems today there's one um it's called a blessing for the exhausted or a blessing for courage and because again, it speaks, I, I very much felt too, um, what it means to be a school leader. It speaks to when the soul aches and when you need another kind of discourse or narrative to come in and just hold you in that space. So, yes, the, you know, I, I look differently at the world of education. I will turn to poetry. I will turn <laughs> to alternative authors because I think they just shine a different light in terms of what it means to be human in this, in this world and as an educator as well. Finally, Viv, if somebody wants to connect with you or wants to find out more about your work, where, where can they contact you? Or where do, what, you know, what are your websites okay. or social media, things right. like that? So on Twitter, very easy. It's just at Viv Grant. Our website is Integrity Coaching. So it's just www.integritycoaching.co.uk. We've got tons of resources, tons of blog posts. We have a conference every year in London called Education for the Soul, which just gets better and better and better. October every year, so keep a lookout for that. Details on our website. But yeah, they're the main areas that people can find us. Lots of ways there to connect with and follow the thoughts and work of Viv Grant, who is an executive coach and the director of Integrity Coaching in London. I spoke to Viv Grant at the recent annual conference of the Irish Primary Principals Network, where she was one of the keynote speakers. That brings us to the end of another podcast. You can access this podcast and all previous Inside Education podcasts by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on the Podcasts tab. You can read my book, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, by borrowing it from your local library or by purchasing it from an online bookstore. My email address is insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. Until the same time next week, this is Sean Delaney signing off. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.